Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a wonderful chat with triathlon superstar, Richard Murray. Richard shares his journey into the world of endurance sports from the farm in South Africa to the top of the world. We share some laughs in this one as he describes his penalties he's received in races and his eventual disqualification at the Hamburg World Triathlon Series race in 2016 when he was in a two-way battle with Mario Mola for the win. His rebellious personality, although entertaining for us as viewers, does get himself into a little bit of trouble at times. And Richard shares his training and how he's prepared for key races. And finally, he shares his thoughts on Ironman racing. Now, I'd love your feedback, so please follow me on the social media platforms. Instagram, I'm Greg Bennett World. Twitter, I'm Greg Bennett One. And Facebook, you can just go to Greg Bennett. And like I said, give me your feedback. I really appreciate that. And I can respond to you there on those platforms, so I really appreciate it. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. Enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible. The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and, and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water so there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from whole foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade. Designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now. No code needed. And get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com. H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E. Com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. All right. I've been excited to have this man on the show for quite some time now. One of the great personalities of the sport of triathlon. He's one of the most consistent men on the ITU World Series, rarely out of the top five for almost a decade. 
He's had his big wins, including the ITU World Series events in Edmonton and Hamburg and Leeds and the ITU Duathlon World Championships, and he placed fourth at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio. He's won the big money races, including the Island House Invitational Triathlon and the Super League Triathlon. He's never afraid to just play it up for the cameras and give us a great show. So welcome and thanks for joining me on Be With Champions, Richard Murray. How are you, mate? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for the thanks for the introduction. Wow, I feel like I've uh, achieved something. But uh, <laughs> no. uh, I, I think you've been one of the most uh, requested people I've had for this podcast. And so to finally track you down and uh, and have you on the show is a real privilege. So thanks for coming on. No, no, that's uh, yeah. I've always uh, I've been following following you for such a long time as well. So I think it'll be awesome to to be able to uh yeah to kind of kind of join together and do something cool uh and yeah the last couple of weeks have been a bit crazy as all of a sudden have been some racing and everything so kind of focus been thrown on that so yeah it's kind of great to, to find some time to chat yeah well you're back racing um you know you did hamburg and uh, how do i pronounce the next one kalavi very the world yeah. cup you guys just did in uh in czech republic how does it feel to be just simply being back out there and racing, you you had a, a seventh and then a fourth and showing some good form right there or thereabouts. How's it just feel after a year of craziness? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the, the race in Hamburg all of a sudden two weeks before became world champs. Uh, mm. So it went from we don't know whether this race is even going to happen to, okay, now it's world champs. And the, yeah, the, the, then you realize that there's not much you can do to prepare more than what you've done. So kind of you... You kind of got your hand of cards, and that's what you're going to deal and what you're going to what you're going to put on the table. Um, mm. and so kind of going into that, you know, we kind of knew well we're not in the, the best shape we could be, but I'm pretty certain no one really is either. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was kind of cool going into that and having the first race. And I think everyone was thinking, oh, man, in the last week it could also get cancelled, or a couple of days before it could, you know, the cases could go absolutely skyrocket in the country, and all of a sudden they, you know, it becomes a no a no go. Uh, and so. Mm it's kind of difficult to kind of prepare yourself for something that might or might not happen. Um, mm. I think the whole year has kind of been a little bit like that. And uh, yeah, I think from that race, it was also behind closed, kind of behind closed fences races. So the public and stuff was literally like uh, screened out from the, the race completely. Uh, so even if you went down to the course, you couldn't actually see the road where we were racing on because they put these like two and a half meter high fences up with black uh, stuff on so people couldn't actually watch us, uh, which was kind of a weird, I mean, I tried to watch the female, the, 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 the ladies race or females race, and I couldn't see any of it. I had to like walk three Ks up the road, two Ks up the road to actually get a glimpse through the fences. Uh, so it was wow. kind of a weird feeling, you know, and that's not really something we've ever had to deal with or, or, you know, experienced before. And also having the briefings normally, you know, we go to the first race and it's that excitement of seeing the other athletes and, and kind of, you know, oh, how, you know, how, how things been going and whatnot. And you kind of get that, you know, uh, interaction with other athletes, which is kind of what triathlon is really. And, and then this, there was kind of none of that either. Uh, and so it's kind of interesting, but the, the race took place. So it was like all business and no fun, if that makes any sense. Mm, um, that's well put. A very weird, you know, feeling, especially after the race, you know, you want to kind of congratulate people and, you know, kind of, but there's, you couldn't really do that all that much because everyone kind of kept distance and kind of did their own direction. So it was a very, yeah, a very interesting race. I think, you know, we did the Super League race two weeks before that in uh, in Rotterdam. And mm. after the race, everything, everyone just disappeared. And where did everyone go? So it was almost like we raced and then the race, everything got packed up and everyone was gone. 
like right after the finish. So it was quite a, yeah, kind of a really weird take at how kind of triathlon has been going this year. Yeah, I, I like how you put it there. It's like all the work but none of the fun. I mean, I mean, for us as fans, we got to have the the fun, I guess, in just watching some incredible athletes do their thing again. So it was, it's great that it's come back for for us as fans and people that just love the sport and love watching you guys do what you do. But I get it for you guys the the whole idea of the mateship and and the hanging out and the and and just all the energy that goes with it. And, and on one of your YouTube. Um, shows and i'm going to refer to your youtube show a bit because i think you're doing a fantastic job but i I loved that you know both yourself and your wife rachel clammer also incredible professional athlete in her own right doing the briefing online in your hotel room as you kind of rode your bikes there and it just when i had vincent lewis on the show the other day he said oh i didn't even i didn't even turn it on you know he didn't even he's like finally i didn't have to go to a briefing so he saw it as a as a positive um but I also like what you say in the sense of planning for the year and trying to get excited about doing the work, but not knowing if there's actually going to be a race for you. It's kind of like trying to go all in, but then holding yourself back a little bit. You know, it's like this: Do I go? Do I stop? And uh, it was funny because I, I mentioned uh, Vincent Lewis again. He also said, "Look, when he went and he was training with Joel Filio, he said, look, 'Look, I'm going all in on Hamburg, no matter what happens.'" And then he said. And then they announced it as a world championship two weeks before. So for him, it was like, here you go. <laughs> it was like, it was the perfect combination. And uh, I, I just think it's very tough for you guys, but I'm enthralled and interested by the fact that you've all been able to keep your motivation up and your fitness up this entire time. I mean, how have you and Rachel been able to sustain that kind of get up every day and keep working without knowing if there's an event coming? Yeah, I think that's the. I think that's the one thing that a lot of people are kind of asking is uh, how do you stay motivated when there's kind of isn't a goal, you know, there isn't a goal, or there isn't a, something to shoot for, you know, mm. as they say. But uh, luckily, the one thing is I kind of just enjoy training. I like I, I enjoy getting out and exercising and being outdoors every day. So for me, kind of that is like the the enjoyment of it. Um, mm. I think you've got to kind of enjoy doing that every day. Otherwise, you're. I think if you're an athlete that looks for goals all the time and there were no races this year, you're going to be a little bit lost. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And you're going to have less direction, if that makes sense. And so I definitely, you know, for me, it's always been, I mean, I started doing sports because of fun and I continued, you know, and I've never really wanted to lose that sight of doing that. Um, and so we kind of mixed things up. We got on the mountain bikes as well, but when we were here, uh, we wanted to do. I wanted to do a uh, really, really long ride. I always wanted to ride like over two hundred k. So I coached it. Okay, cool. We're gonna like kind of do one. We you can make the loop as big as you want, go as far as you want, whatever. And I saw a lot of athletes ended up doing like they're also doing stupid, crazy rides. Like the Norwegians did like three hundred and forty k or something the one day. <laughs> and then it became a competition of who can ride the furthest in one day. And then Martin van Riel went and smashed out like also three hundred and fifty k. And then it was like, oh, no, no, but it's the how fast can you do that as well? So I thought, Jesus, this is, it's become like an online battle. And uh, at the start, I thought, well, let me see if I can go and smash all the comms in our area on one run. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, let's see if I can pack like 14 comms on one run here in the area. <laughs> but I, I, think I, I think that's been really fun watching you guys. It has been, you know, your your 5k run that you did on the road and you ran that i think it was at 1337 which is just blows my mind i for people listening if you're an athlete you probably understand just how quickly that is for for people that maybe 
uh, amateurs or, or non-athletes, let me put that in perspective. Go to your local gym, turn the treadmill as fast as it'll go. Now, that's not even fast enough to, to equal what, what Richard's done for 1337 5K. It's basically 245K pace or something like this for 5K. And then you went and did a 3K, which was also a phenomenal time. And, and I think all of us were enthralled because I think you did a bit of promotion before it. And uh, it's like trying to create these little outcome goals for yourself for a little bit of motivation, but at the same time staying really present on the process goals and simply focusing on just enjoying the training. But tell me about those, you know, the 5K run and, and the 3K run. Yeah, I think that I didn't realize. So that's kind of how my YouTube channel kind of, well, restarted. I kind of made it in 2011, my YouTube channel, when I was in Maui at the Xterra World Champs. I took a video cycling. I think I was cycling up like on the bike course or something. And I thought, oh, I'm going to put this on on YouTube or whatever. And I uploaded like a 20-second video to YouTube or something in 2011, which is <laughs> my phone. And I looked back and I was like, oh, yeah, that's when I started my YouTube channel. <laughs> like, no, I, I didn't even write a description or I didn't like, I didn't make thumbnails and all this other fancy stuff. Like, it was just raw. And uh, and and then after that, I made a couple other videos with GoPro stuff and whatever. And then so then after this one, I thought, well, I want to run a 5K um, as fast as I can. And I'm in some pretty good shape. And uh, two weeks before that or three weeks before that, I think, um, I'd done a 5K on the track. Um, and I put spikes on for the first time since I was like 17 years old, I think. Um, literally like the day of the race, I put brand new spikes on and went out and smashed it on the track. And I, I like completely underestimated, uh, training during the week. And I kind of banged out some one case, like three days before the race. Uh, and I banged out, I think, a, I think I did a three, three by one K or something at like 240 average or something like that, like three days before the race. Uh, and then the race came and I was like, I want to run under 14 on the track was my goal. And then I did like 14, 15 or something. And I was like super upset. I was kind of like, I don't know why I'm so upset from not running what I wanted to, but I kind of didn't plan it correctly. And I ran on the track and I was like, oh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give it another go, but I'm going to do it on the road because we normally race triathlon on the road, not on the track, like turning all the time in these corners. Uh, and so we literally set out a course. I tried to find a loop that had the least amount of corners in kind of get the gps as accurate i mean if you have like like 10 or 15 corners your gps usually cuts them and it makes you faster um and so i tried to find a loop here which was luckily we're in the netherlands so it's pretty flat so that wasn't a difficult trying to find a flat course um and uh yeah i kind of found the flattest possible course with like two corners i think there's three corners on the 5k um and they're quite wide as well and there's kind of a bike lane on the inside so it's almost like you're running on a track just running on the road uh which is quite cool and yeah, I went with Rachel's dad in front of me on the bicycle. I wanted like a pacer that could go like at 245 and I could just literally sit on the bike and try and make sure I run the same speed as the bike. And uh, Rachel's dad had a running watch in front of me and he's a runner as well. Uh, and uh, there was like a bit of a crosswind as well coming from the side. And I was like, oh, today's not going to be the day. And uh, luckily Rachel's dad managed to like block the wind that was coming like a crosswind on the last K and a half. I'd like a crosswind from the left uh, and he managed to block it for me. And so... Yeah, it was pretty wild. Um, and I think the running time as well kind of made a bit of a stir in the South African community of runners. A lot of them had a lot to say and uh, said it was impossible and runner triathletes can't run so fast and blah, blah, blah. And had all this backlash from some haters, which was quite enjoyable, actually. Um, and uh, oh, I don't know about I, I, I'm a bit disappointed to hear that because I think anybody just giving it a good go, it's like uh, 
I think that's crazy. And the other thing to back up that, look, hey, triathletes can't run that. We've we've since seen, you know, young Alex Yee from Great Britain run his, what was his, a 13, you probably know it, uh, 1330 or something. And then uh, Conix, I think, also ran a 1340 or something. Uh, incredible times that you guys are all running now. Yeah, I think the triad, Mar- Mario Moller also ran a 1340 as well on the track. Um, mm. And I knew that it like I've I always wanted to run under fourteen. I ran fourteen oh five in Hamburg when I actually won Hamburg in two twelve, uh, and that was fifty meters short. And that was like after swimming, biking, and then running five k. So I was like, well, surely I can run under fourteen if I just run it all out or just once. Uh, and so that was kind of was how more or less the motivation happened. And then then someone said, no, I should run a three k because I looked and I went, oh, maybe I can do a three k, and if I can run. Under eight minutes, that would be also pretty epic. Um, it's unbelievable, mate. <laughs> I was like, well, can I run? Can I actually do that and go under like so under two? Pretty much, I had to run just under I think two forty, two forty, and then I had to do the last one k under two forty. Uh, and that was like a yeah, that was I almost missed. I literally like almost missed it in the last 400, 500 meters. Went around the corner and then. I had guys like live streaming and then the live stream died as well because we were like kind of in the middle of nowhere and there was no signal. So it died like at 2K, the live stream, and then people were like, right, like, ah, oh, you can't do that. How can you make a video? And then the live stream dies. <laughs> but Oh, mate. Well, I'm just, I'm just so blown away by, by those times. Absolutely incredible. And, and I'm loving your YouTube. It is up now. You've been obviously working incredibly hard on it and – Go check it out for people, listeners. Go check out Richard Murray's YouTube because you, you're doing a lot of work, and it looks like you're doing all the work. A, a number of the guests I've had on this on this show have people that they employ professionally to follow them around and take videos and and manage their social media. But from all accounts, it looks like you're doing all the work, and I love just how authentic it is i love the the camera being turned on first thing in the morning and poor rachel trying to wake up and the camera's in her face as she gets out of bed i think it's actually brilliant what you're doing yeah no that was uh i think that was yeah with the fight with my 5k after i did that i said oh well, i have to upload this uh and then i think that's got about one hundred and forty thousand views now on that 5k video which was like kind of my first real posted video that I posted on uh, on YouTube. And then I thought, well, I'll do the 3K then as well. And, uh, and then it kind of spiraled into me buying some stuff. And now I'm like looking at like, you know, trying to get music rights and all these things and stuff and busy figuring it all out myself. And, yeah, I am doing it all myself, which does take most of my day. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's, I, think it's, uh, I think it's cool. It's a different medium to give, kind of give back in a way and kind of like to show people our daily life versus just, you know, like Twitter and Instagram and, and those types of things. Uh, we're not heading, I'm not heading anywhere toward TikTok. I'm too old for that. Uh, I've definitely had a lot of people. <laughs> TikTok is where it's at as well if you're, if you're younger and then maybe, I'd, you know, but when you get older, it's like, uh, is everyone that funny? Like, I don't know. Like, just not, not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's great what you're doing, and and look, uh, in doing some homework for this show, you know, it it it's fascinated fascinated me this this next amazing group of talented athletes that have come through over this last ten years that basically retired people like myself that have been hanging on for too long. And when I was doing homework, I looked up, and one of the first big wins you had was the 2007 Junior Duathlon World Titles. Now. What actually stood out about that junior duathlon world titles to me was you won, 
Alistair Brownlee was second and Mario Moller was sixth. Then you went and won the junior world title again, the duathlon world titles in 08. You won. Mario Moller was fifth. And then um, Jonathan Brownlee was 13th. What fascinated me, fascinated me about all of that is that you've been with this entourage, this new wave of the two Brownleys, Mario Mola, Vincent Lewis. You guys have come through and you've been competing with these guys relentlessly for 13 years, your entire career. And the other thing I noticed with that, and I just want to get your thoughts on it, when I look at your resume, nobody has been more consistent in getting fourths and fifths in the World Series for 10 years. But every time it's one of the, it's the two Brownleys, Gomez, Mario Moller and Vincent Lewis that seem to be there or thereabouts. Your resume had the Brownleys not been around. Wow. It would have been something else. Tell me about how you feel coming through this era. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, it's actually interesting. I actually had a, a, a sit down chat with at Super League with Johnny Brownlee and we had like a a heartfelt conversation with each other uh, that was recorded, which is should be should be coming out sometime. It is quite uh, it should be quite entertaining. Um, and yeah, I remember racing. Uh, yeah, I mean, Alistair and Jonathan the first time in in uh, in I think it was in Buddha in Gior in Hungary. Um, and at, I think I think it was Johnny who crashed out on the bike course during the run and stuff. And and Alistair went out on the start of the run and then I was like, I had to catch him on the run and I caught him and managed to, it was like my first uh, kind of international win uh, as an international athlete. Uh, and, you know, since then it's been like, uh, Jonathan literally explained as he said, like, we, we've had you chasing us for our entire career. And I, I literally said, yeah, I feel like I've been chasing you for my entire career. That was literally the, <laughs> that could almost be like a book in itself called The Chase. Um and uh, yeah, it's definitely been funny. Whenever, whenever the two Brownlee brothers are there, it's always, it's always like they're the ones that, that uh, you know, they keep the front group literally pushing along, and they keep things moving. And it's, and it's almost like I have to chase them down, and then uh, they literally want to try and stay away from me. Uh, and well, I, it's, it's like your run is both a gift and a curse, right? I mean, you showed it in two thousand and seven and two thousand and eight. And all you did was put fuel to the fire for these guys to swim harder up the front because everybody's petrified from your run. I mean, both you and Maria Mola are the ones that are forcing the pace up front. I mean, if you guys weren't there, I think that front pack would slow right down. Yeah, well, I think it's got to do with, you know, you only need to go as hard as you need to to, to kind of win the race, if that makes any sense. And I think... Um, obviously you burn more matches when you if you're in a smaller front group so that obviously you need to calculate that it's almost like Tour de France where it comes down to the line a little bit um, but yeah I think the different the front guys now have definitely obviously over the years gotten a lot more streamlined in the front group and they have the same intention every time the race happens you know uh, we know that we're not going to come out I think that I can count on my hand the amount of times I've come out maybe on count on three fingers the amount of time that I've come out in the front group Um <laughs> And then I've actually had like horrible races sometime when I came out in the front group, which uh, maybe I'm just not used to coming out in the front group and, and not having to like just annihilate myself the first five minutes or 10 minutes um, on the bike. Uh, it was just a weird scenario then or something. But yeah, no, I definitely think it's, uh, you know, it's always been been the chase and Mario and myself kind of uh, end up running together the last couple of years, uh, trying to chase the Brownleys and, and Gomez and uh, Vincent and those guys down for sure. 
Yeah, it's been fun to watch and I've always seen you chasing. Now you've got uh, some Norwegians that are often with you to help chase chase that you know little group of five or six that are often off the front it's nice that you've got a little bit more bike support a little bit more bike power um so you're not not alone in the chase but it has made it very entertaining for us as spectators to see if the the chase group can can catch up and and even going just going back to hamburg what was now the world championships and you know, basically that 15 to 20 second margin is so close. It's so, it's so close. You guys are almost there. It's, it's been a real joy. What, what I want to do, we've, we've kind of talked about some of the recent stuff now and, and YouTube, but what I would like to do is just to get a better understanding of your background, where you came from. And, and I guess, when did you sort of first identify endurance sport as a, as a passion? And tell me a little bit about that kind of experience. Uh, yeah. So I think when I was, I think when I was a mountain biker, so I actually, I actually come from the off-road scene um, and I grew up on a farm just uh, in the Western Cape in South Africa and uh, mountain biking and cross-country running was kind of where it started for me um, and I first wanted to become a runner actually and I kind of went to uh, the track and field, so I ran 800 and 1500 uh, on the track and I never really made it to, uh, I made it once to the South African champs when I was 14 years old uh and i kind of went there and i ran the fifth i think i ran the 1500 and i ran four minutes flat on the 1500 in the one of the heats uh and i came stone last uh boys under 15 and i don't think i'll ever forget that thinking cheesy now i ran my pb here four minutes flat i'm like 14 years old i thought that was pretty good and i, I literally didn't even make the final and for me that was like okay my track career is now finished <laughs> um i'm gonna try and do something else and i was doing mountain biking as well at the same time and uh, it was definitely like a passion, like uh, running for me in cross country. I ran cross country as well. So I was actually South African champion as a junior for cross country uh, when I came through. And so I was doing track and field and cross country. Uh, and then I was doing mountain biking at the same time. Uh, and I kind of really enjoyed those kind of like the difference between the sports. And I did mountain biking then for about five or six years, uh, kind of seriously. And uh, I was national champion twice. Uh, for my age category when I was a junior for mountain biking. Um, and so I was pretty serious into the mountain biking. I went to uh, national, then I went through to under 23, or sorry, an under 19 level mountain biking. And I also got annihilated uh, at one of the races kind of, and I was thinking, well, is mountain biking really what I want to end up doing? Uh, and so I was kind of like stuck between running mountain biking and road cycling. So I was also riding for a road cycling team at the time as well. So I kind of pick off between which, race happened to be on what weekend um and so the multi-sports kind of was in uh, kind of started to do it when i was younger already i just hadn't put it all together um and so when i was about 40 when i was about 14 or 17 that direction i started to do duathlon uh, and the odd triathlon um and so i went to the western province champs which is so like our district champs um and i swam and i was literally like the worst swimmer you could ever find um <laughs> And every race I would come out, like, I think we did like a 400 meter swim or something and I'd come out like a minute, like the last person by a minute or two minutes behind out the swim uh, and I'd catch up on the bike and then I'd manage to take everyone on the run. And uh, I was pretty happy with that. And all of a sudden when I got to like kind of junior distance, it moved up to 750. And unfortunately then my one minute behind became like three or four minutes behind out the water. <laughs> And I thought, this is disgusting. Why do people need to swim so far? And I don't enjoy this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And uh, and then I went to, then I literally said, duathlon is what I want to do. And and 
so then I was like went to World Champs and I managed in 2005, I think was my first international race in Adelaide, in uh, uh, Newcastle in Australia. Um, I think I was 16 then. So it was my first year in, in the under-19 category. I was 16. Uh, and I think I ended up coming fifth or sixth or something like that. Uh, fifth. Fifth. You can see it here in front of me. Fifth, think, there you are. I went out on the run like the cla- – on the first run, I went out like a, like a psycho on the first run or something on the, in the duathlon. And then I managed to get reined in on the bike. And the second run, I was just done, finished. And uh, and uh, so duathlon was then my thing. And I, okay, well, I'm sort of good at this and there's world champs and cool. And so then I did that and, and, and I got my – then I got my two world titles as a junior – and I was thinking, okay, well, where to next? And I said, well, this is the highest you can get. And I thought, she's like it. Well, I've got to find something else that's higher than this because I'm, I'm here already now. Um, and so the, the, someone said, yeah, well, the, the coach said, if you learn to swim, you can make good money in triathlon. So I said, okay, that's going to be a tough call. Uh, how long is that going to take? And the guy said, about five years. I thought, she's like it. I said, that's a long time. Um, and so from then I literally thought, well, if I want to make money in sports and the triathlon is going to be it, then I've got to learn to swim. And I think I was 20 then, I think 19 or 20 about. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and then that was, that was kind of how triathlon started really. And it's like from the extreme sports era, I also did motocross as well. Uh, when I was a junior, so my father raced, uh, motocross and enduros for about 30 years. Uh, and so I came from the motocross world as well. I did some freestyle motocross, enduros, uh, yeah, a lot of different things, uh, downhill mountain biking as well. Um, so a little bit of everything and then kind of ended up doing endurance sports at the end. I, I love all of that. I think that's, that's, you, you've got a unique past coming off the farm. You know what I mean? It's like, I think you're my, my first guest that's really had that real, that farming background, which is you know being out on and, and riding the motorbikes and, and riding the mountain bikes, and and anybody that's watched you race or some of your videos and how you can control a a bike, you're our Peter Sagan in the sport of triathlon. Is Richard Murray the guy that can chuck a wheelie whenever he wants to? And uh, it's amazing to watch it. And you've done um, Xterra World Championships a couple of times, correct? Yeah, no, I've got to, I've got, to, I've got a. Uh, I've got to fix my world champs that I had a couple of years ago. I think 2013. Um, when I went to world champs for the first time, for I only went to world champs once for Xterra, and I, I kind of failed miserably at it. <laughs> and uh, I've got to go back and fix that one day. Uh, but uh, yeah, I learned training in the Netherlands, kind of when it's five degrees and raining uh, and it's flat, then to go to Maui where it's like pretty much the complete opposite temperature. It's probably not the best preparation for for that race, uh, and so yeah, maybe next time I'll prepare probably in South Africa or somewhere hot beforehand, and then maybe yeah, I'd expect that 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 would be a, a world title for you for sure, and uh, you could back up the great uh, Conrad Stoltz, who I raced throughout my whole career, who is one of the greatest Xterra mountain biker you know triathletes that that I think we've ever seen, and and it sounds like that's definitely up your alley in the future and i hope i hope that actually event gets bigger and bigger because i think it's uh i think it's an incredible event but when did you kind of realize i mean th- those times that you're running as as a, a young teenager four minutes for the 1500 it's just like you said it's phenomenal it's absolutely phenomenal but you're, you're getting blown away <laughs> by the rest of the south africans but was there a time where you were like i am going to be an athlete for sure like i feel this talent this strength this is what i should be doing was there a moment or was it just over time no i think 
I think it was a little bit over time. Um, I did when I was in primary school already. I was kind of, I wouldn't say an overachiever when I was in primary school, but when I was about, um, I think when I was about eight or t- 10 years old, 11 years old already, uh, I was running cross country and uh, I really enjoyed like a competition and, and being competitive. And uh, I got a whole bunch of the school records and stuff when I was going through primary school for running and on, on we had like a grass track back then. So all the times and everything was on the grass track. Uh, and then when I went through to high school as well, um, it, it was it was the same thing, sort of. But I kind of, you know, I was kind of a teenager then, so I was kind of a bit well, I wouldn't say a bit rebellious. I was very rebellious. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was kind of like trying to fit into how can I be cool and do sports at the same time. And unfortunately, like endurance sports and those things isn't seen very cool in many countries when you're a teenager. Like it's just not cool, you know. So I was trying to say how can I fit into the party scene as well as being an endurance athlete. And this is like. I think if anyone's from New Zealand or Australia, they can probably kind of understand this this phase of like teenage plus endurance sports athlete. Um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of kind of the way that it went through. But I definitely, when I was young, I definitely knew that sports was definitely something that I wanted to you know pursue one day. And I just never knew you know in what type of sport or what you know form that might be really. Well, you do have one of those kind of unique personalities, and I said at the top of the show, you know. I think you've brought something to triathlon in that that kind of personality, that little bit of rebelliousness, that little bit of downhill mountain bike, motocross type personality into the sport. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but generally speaking, triathletes tend to be fairly A-type personalities. They're, they're fairly driven in all areas of their life. They're very, very disciplined and, um, and well-behaved. Um, and I think you've brought a little bit of flair, um, and, and I think there's a few of you actually in this generation that have brought a little bit of that, which has been great uh, for the sport. Um, and I will get to, I mean, you probably know I'm going to bring it up at some point, one of your events that you were disqualified for um, in the last few years, but I don't want to talk about that right now. What I want to talk about is continuing this journey of when did you kind of go – was it that coach when he said, okay, you've won duathlon world championships twice as a junior now. If you want to make money in the sport, you've got to go over to triathlon. Is Was it at that moment you said, right, I'm going all in now. This is what I'm going to do? No. You know, I think the moment where I thought I'm going to go all in was actually after uh, – I think it was not too long after that. That was the same year that I raced duathlon world champs in 2000. And- Eight, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was in uh, in Rimini, and that same year it was Vancouver World Champs Triathlon in Canada, um, like probably the coldest triathlon that I can ever recall. Like it was oh, just the worst, disgusting. the worst, mate, the worst. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> and I mean, we've raced some cold triathlons before, but I don't think uh, I mean even the ones you know the, the other ones in Canada, which have been in Edmonton, have been equally cold it wasn't an olympic distance race and wasn't pouring with rain like that but that that yeah literally almost came last in the world champs triathlon uh and i was literally thinking if i want to continue doing triathlon i've got to do something special um and because i literally my swim was so shoddy that literally i came out and, and when i was running like last place and, and the, the commentator was saying oh it's a world triathlon champion coming here at the back of the field uh, for me, that was the turning point towards like I need to do something, otherwise I may as well chuck the towel in. Um, and yeah, so it was a yeah, it was an interesting. I was literally I'll never forget being chased by the front group. So I was almost a lap behind, 
um, like solo time trialing for the entire 20K. Um, and I think I could, when I turned back once or twice, I could actually see the front group chasing me. And I was thinking, I'm going to get lapped out here today. And I think for the me, that was kind of the turning point towards, I need to, I need to do something uh, serious about this. And you know who won that Vancouver Junior World Championships? Vincent Louis, probably. That's right. Vincent Lewis won that. And then Jonathan Brownlee with third, uh, Joshua Amberger. So there's some incredible names in there that would have been hunting you down. And, and just talking about Vancouver Worlds, I remember at the end of 2008, both my wife, Laura, and I went through our season and was like, yeah, this was a pretty good year. We did this, 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 and this. And, and we went through, you know, as you do kind of, we totally had blacked out vancouver that had ever happened out in our minds and that's not to say it wasn't a great event for those that did well but for us because of the cold we both froze and i remember i had to finish on the podium to cement my spot for the australian olympic team otherwise australia was going to lose its three three spots for the olympics so i got off the bike and i knew i was in good running shape and i'm running with javier gomez for the first two to three kilometers and going yeah i've got this and i remember just getting to four kilometers and just completely freezing up and it was just my glutes and hamstrings and everything just froze up so i just i want to let you know that you weren't alone in remembering that vancouver was a was a tough experience for those that prefer the fair weather or the warmer weather type conditions it was kind of brutal so then after that i mean your progression's pretty good though after that you say you couldn't swim within by 2010 you're winning the african championships you you're then getting top five in european cups you actually starting to knock on the door of looking at 2012 as a realistic, you know, opportunity to go to the Olympics. Was is that how you see it? Yeah, you, you know what the interesting thing is is that I only started to think about the Olympics in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's just. It's, you know, a lot of countries will have like, you know, this four-year plan and they'll have, we're going to do these training camps and we're going to be funded by this and that uh, corporation and blah, blah, blah. And then in Africa, it's literally like two months before you'd be like, you've qualified and it's written in the newspaper and, you know, you know book your flights and off you go, you know. And uh, that's kind of hard work. And, you know, I needed literally to get on the podium a few times in the start of 2012 to qualify. So I thought, well, what's the chance of me racing for my first season of World Series and getting on the podium a few times before the Olympics? Uh, I thought, well, you know, there's maybe a 2% chance that could happen. And uh, then funny enough, that actually ended up happening, which was quite quite a, quite a moment. Uh, and I was actually training with, a, with the Aussies in uh, Wollongong uh, just before Sydney, uh, the World Series, which was probably one of the coolest venues uh, that I can remember for triathlon. Uh, it's pretty. It's not on anymore, and uh, it's always nice to race in a place that you know that it's going to be warm. That's always positive. I mean, in Europe, it can be hit and miss. It can be the middle of summer, and it could still be cold, uh, which is kind of the way Europe runs sometimes. You know, <laughs> especially Hamburg and uh, Rotterdam and some other you know races in Europe. But um, yeah, it was definitely uh quite a quick progression and uh, yeah not something that that i put a hell of a lot of thought process into really 
but but I love I love that 2012 and 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 just touching on Sydney. Yes, I, I think Sydney of all the spectacular backdrops in the world of triathlon. You know, we raced there all through the 90s, obviously leading up to the Sydney Olympics. Um, just an incredible backdrop for a triathlon. Um, perfect terrain, hills and flat. It's got everything you want. It's an amazing race. You got second there. You back that up with a third in San Diego, and then very shortly after, you've stormed on to to win. Your first World Series race in uh, in Hamburg, what was that? Five weeks before the Olympic Games, four weeks before the Olympic Games. Yeah, that was quite a quite an eye opener. It was literally like, okay, well, I'm starting to one or two races. Well, and I was actually leading the World Series at that at the, after Hamburg, and I never raced the next. The next race was Madrid, and I was like, I'm on a good run here. Let me just take a break um, and uh, not race in Madrid. And it would have been the one time that I would have worn the number one swim cap at an IT race, and I didn't race there. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, buddy. Well, you were trying. You were focusing on the Olympic Games. Yeah, I was like, oh, Olympics, no, can't race Hamburg. Uh, and then I literally got sick after that for probably like four weeks. Mm. So I didn't train for like probably three or four weeks after that. Like the same weekend as Madrid and. Uh, and yeah, and uh, funny, I only thought about that now. And Rachel, Rachel got the number one after winning Abu Dhabi uh, mm-hmm. the year before, so she got the gold and like they had the gold numbers and stickers and everything. And I was like, Shit, I never really got that, but <laughs> you know, you can't get everything you wish for. <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a crazy turnaround of thing, and having like sprint finish with Javier Gomez. My parents were there as well, uh, mm. quite cool. So they they got to witness that with me, which was quite awesome. Uh, and yeah, coming down to the last, you know, heavy and myself, you know, running away from the field. And you know, the funny thing is, I always compare. It's funny the Brownleys weren't there, and a couple of guys that were racing the Olympics didn't go there, just in the fact of because you know it's a race before the Olympics. If you come down there, that's your Olympics gone. Uh, but you know, in my mind, was Hamburg was actually my first WTS race I've ever done before. So I was like, well, I've got to go to Hamburg. The crowds are massive, and they've got great beer and schnitzel. So I mean, why would you not uh, go to Hamburg? Um, and so, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't think you can look at it as the, the Brownleys weren't there. I think uh, you know that's what my wife would do. She she would win a race and be like so and so and so and so is like there, and I'd be like, it wasn't fact. <laughs> Mate, so long as I'm beating whoever's out there, I, I wouldn't care. I, I could beat if there was only five guys on the start line. If there's only two guys on the start line, I beat one. I'd still be like, yeah, I'm awesome. But uh, my wife would always break it down, dissect it and everything else. And and you did beat. I mean, when you look at that field, you still got, you know, Jan Fedino is coming in 10th. Bevan Doherty was 11th. These guys are the medalists from the 08 Olympic Games. Javier Gomez, you know, like you said, was almost undefeated up until that point. It must have been just a an, an incredible feeling. and. And to just top off what you said about Hamburg, I actually won the very first Hamburg event in 2002 and I didn't want to race it. And I was tired. I just, I think I just raced Lausanne the week before. I didn't want to do it. And Laura said, Greg, you've got to go race this race. You'll have, you'll, you'll enjoy it. The crowds are incredible. And so I went, I went and did it and had, had a win. And I've never forgot just the, the deafening crowd for the entire course. It's a very, very special one to have on your resume. So I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it was even uh, – I don't think many people would know either as well. I was – my flight that we that we booked coming in was was uh, delayed and I ended up missing the briefing and I got put to the back of the start list as well. So, <laughs> so when we started the swim, I was like, 
Uh, so obviously, for not everyone that knows, when you if you miss the briefing, so they obviously have the briefing where they tell everyone how the race is going and whatnot. And I literally messaged them and said, "My flight's been delayed. I'm going to miss the briefing. Like it's not my fault. Like can 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 you still give me like my position? I'm like number five or whatever. Stand next to the good swimmers." And they said, "No, sorry, you know you." You missed the briefing. That's it. You get put to the back of the start list where you start next to guys that you have no idea what their swimming cap- capability is like. And you'll most likely start in the middle of the field. So you'll like the pontoon, everyone lines up, and then you'll stand right in the middle and get an absolute smash fest to the first uh, first boy. Uh, and so I stood next to the guy next to me, and I was like last to get called on. And I thought, like, Gee, this is really happening. So I'm like called on number 60 or something. And I asked the guy next to me, I said, I was just swimming and he didn't speak any English and just looked at me and shook his head. And I thought, today is going to be a good day. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that. And like, like you said, you were, you were num- number four in the world where you, you kind of get those better, better starts. And, uh, you know, it's like I had Vincent Lewis, like I mentioned, you know, he said, you know, having the number one and being able to pick number one and being on the outside and and even for myself when i did fortunately get to that number one for a little while there it was like ah the freedom of being able to choose the far left or far right and having nobody hit me on the other side was always just i always had the best swims of my life and that's when your ranking went down and my my final kind of itu races back in 2011 i think i was i had kind of small hopes of maybe going to the olympics again I, i kind of threw my hat in the ring and um and here they'd call me out at like number 65 or whatever it was. I had, my ranking was so poor. And it was. It was the worst. You just had to find this little yeah, no, little you're... space between everybody. Just <laughs> I love it. So I just want to – you went on then. You got 17th at the Olympics, but you were, you were dealing with some sickness, you said? Yeah, no, I was uh, – I don't want to say that's why I was bad at the Olympics because it, I, actually I was ill for a couple of weeks in – in uh, Germany, because oh, I didn't have anywhere to go to train. It sounds funny, but I was literally a South African wandering around finding places to train. I know uh, Aussies and Kiwis know know this all too well. Um, and you're kind of far away from the plant, from the triathlon mecca, which is Europe, and you've got to head there to, tr- to obviously train and race, and you've got to find somewhere to stay. Uh, and so I was actually ended up uh, rooming with uh, my German teammates in uh, Saarbrücken, um, and uh, I obviously, I got, I actually got told to leave the city um, by by uh, the German National Federation because the Dutch, the German National Federation was training in Saarbrücken, and I was there like busy, busy sleeping on in someone's living room on a mattress, <laughs> and uh, I literally got told I have two days to leave the leave the country, um, and I thought like I've got nowhere to go. <laughs> Where can I Le- leave? Leave the country or leave Saarbrücken? Leave Saarbrücken. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i think it was a month and a half for the olympics and i'm like oh where on earth am i gonna go um and so they ended up going to um i think in the south by the black forest uh Freiburg. Mm. Mm, beautiful uh, and then i went there to train and then i got really sick there because i was yeah i got like dust allergies and whatever and i ended up getting really sick and having like bronchitis practically um <laughs> and i love it my father had to actually fly over there to kind of come and save me from myself um, and, uh, he flew from South Africa, flew over there, and he said, "No, I said, no, you can stay until the Olympics and, and whatever." And then, and then we went to train with the Aussies in Victoria. So I went from there, literally, like, "No, we're going to go good weather somewhere nice. I can train with with other guys." And the Aussies were Jamie Turn, and they were really open for me to join their group. Uh, and so I was really thankful for that. Um, and so I kind of went there and joined with them in Victoria, which is like an amazing training. The location there is so good um and nice like gravel trails around the city and so i went there and trained there and then 
from there went on to London and uh, yeah, kind of did everything I could really. And I knew the race was going to be kind of a brownie breakaway and we have to chase. And then that was the case. And then we could run for probably top 20 or something like that if, if all goes well. And then that's more or less how it happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I see. I think, I think my wife also finished 17th. Laura also finished 17th at London. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. But then after then, mate, 2013, you, you start to become this very consistent athlete who was coaching you then after after 2012 did you settle down and find a coach and get yeah, a bit more so after 2012 i actually started with joel filial uh in 2013 um mm. and i think i was don't know if i was well he was coaching some some age group athletes i think and then he started the jft crew team and then um yeah we kind of did the first camp in uh florida uh in claremont and yeah we were there training for a couple of months and stuff and um, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. It's like my first international group. Uh, over the Olympics and stuff, I had a coach, uh, Lindsay Perry, who was helping me with my coach, but I was also kind of self-coached. I kind of half self-coached myself through London. Um, and I was kind of writing my own sets, my own training programs for some of the stuff and joining people here and there. So it was kind of a bit of a random existence in 2012 a little bit. Um, mm. And then, yeah, 2013, I started with Joel. And, uh, yeah, I was kind of with Joel for the next, what, five years? five or six odd years, so quite a long time after that. Uh, and, yeah, obviously went through many, got through many uh, World Series uh, podiums through that and many, many great races under Joel Philil. Yeah, and, I mean, you see your consistency just suddenly come alive working with Joel and that that crew because it's, uh, like I said at the top of the show, you know, you fifth in the World Series in 2012, fifth in 13, 14 was a bit of a down because you came eighth. <laughs> and this is quite incredible, mate, because it is just incredibly consistent. Then fourth in 15, fifth in 16, fourth in 17, fourth in 18. It's just this and very close at times to being on the World Series podium right behind the, these kind of guys. How, tell me, how does that feel? I mean, I was fourth at the Olympics. I was always known as the consistent athlete. Uh, tell, how does that feel? I mean, I'm not. I certainly don't want to cheapen it because I think it's remarkable feats that you're doing. But I just, it's like you're there, but you're just missing those, you know, the big time. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, like, it's a sometimes a like I wouldn't say a hit and miss me sometimes, but I can either be there sometimes or sometimes I'm not there. Uh, and I think the thing with the the interesting thing is people generally only look at the result; they don't look at the what's happened before. So I think that's the one thing where I always look at the the process and not the outcome always because I think the the outcome is obviously the process is the whole part that you enjoy and the outcome if you win all your races but you're really sad not enjoying your situation then you're actually not really doing yourself any favors and uh, I think the one thing where I really uh, in I really wanted to actually become was somebody who's consistently there all the racing you know always there always in the mix. Um, and that's something that I really wanted to aspire to becoming. I think I kind of got that from Javier Gomez. When I saw Javier Gomez, he's like the most consistent guy you can find in triathlon. And he, I was like, that's really something I want to try and be like. You know, I want to be there and people like, you know, I wouldn't say people like worried about you, but they always know that you're there and you could mix it up if, you know, if the race comes comes to you to a certain degree. But I think for me, it's always been whether we catch or not on the bike. So if we don't catch, 
then I can run myself into maybe top five, top six, something like that. And then if we do catch, I can maybe climb on the podium. Mm. So mm. for me, it's like a real, and then if both of the brownies are there, the chance of me getting on the podium kind of goes down somewhat. <laughs> I can always calculate what percentage down it is. <laughs> um, yeah, also whether they the brownies are on form or, or, or not, or if it's in start of the season, it's always dependent on a few things. But no, I always see it as, you know, if I gave my best uh, and the result is what I got, then, you know, that that is what it is. Mm. No, I, and I certainly don't want you to think that I'm not, I think you what your outcomes have been absolutely incredible. And like you said, you know, when I had Alistair Brownlee on this show, I, I basically told him that he retired me from the sport. <laughs> it was like, he was, he, it's like I, I had, you know, I'd raced for 27 years as a professional and of those years, I always felt deep inside I could win a race. Um, and, I, and I should say it was probably uh, Alistair and both Javier Gomez. Both of them combined, I kind of left going, I don't know how to beat them. It, it was really like this this paradox. I, I, I was stuck trying to figure out how to beat them. Whereas in the past, whether it be my mates, Javier, you know, Hamish Carter, Simon Whitfield, the list goes on, Bevan Doherty, we all had our turns. It was almost like we all got to share a win at the times and we all figured each other out and beat each other up and it was a lot of fun. But I just remember with, with both the Brownleys and Gomez going, God, I don't know. You know, my last race I think against them was in Austria and and I came out of the swim not far and I was taking turns with Alistair and he's yelling at me and I was yelling at him trying to – I was just kind of like the old guard and I got this new young punk yelling at me and, uh, and just trying to out – with him on the bike and be stronger than him on the bike because that was where I felt my real talent was. And and then even then, I think he still rode away on the last lap and then he did a 28-minute whatever 10K off the bike and I finished 20th or whatever. I was like, huh, <laughs> these guys are incredible. So, mate, you, you talked about um, Joel Filiol um, and you had a lot of success with him. You, you got you on the podium at the Commonwealth Games in 2014. You had that incredible race in Rio. Um seven seconds shy off the podium there yeah no that was uh yeah the one uh i think the yeah under obviously under under joel we both like i mean it was it was definitely a great progression something that i mean he's an amazing coach to keep the con his consistency and, and progression through athletes if you can look even look at mario and vincent louis uh he literally brought their consistency from being you know every now and then having a great race to becoming world champion and yeah. Uh, both from Mario and from Vince as well. Uh, and that was an interesting scenario because I was kind of in between that kind of era when when Vince kind of came out and Rachel and I kind of moved out. Um, and yeah, I think it was going into into Rio as well, like having having busted my collarbone. It's always interesting, but people said, "Oh, you got beaten by another South African. That must be the worst." Because it's kind of like you come fourth, which is bad, but then you get beaten by another countryman, which is one place every. That's extra bad. <laughs> So it's like getting like slammed twice, but the, I always look at it as like four months before then I was like on peak form in Australia and I like crashed on the bike and broke my collarbone. And then I was kind of thinking like, can I even compete in four months time at the Olympics type of thing? It was like a, a mental thing against myself and to actually see if I can actually, I, don't, I thought, oh, after like three, four weeks, my collarbone is going to be solid. I'm fine. I'm going to get back and I'm going to have three months to train. And then after like eight or nine weeks, they said, no, the, the bone's not completely fused yet in your shoulder. And I thought, this is going to be a very tough call. Um, and I literally had like two months of swimming. It, it's almost like the fourth place is the, the, the guy that gets the injury 
12 to 16 weeks out. Because I, I look at Javier Gomez in 08, uh, my wife Laura in 08, both managing injuries, just trying to get through, both get fourth. Uh, myself in 04, um, had been world number one in 02 and 03 and was excited to be on the team. Well, I wouldn't say I was a favorite, but I had a very good shot at that medal. Boom, had, had six weeks to train for the games, did the best I could and walked away actually quite happy. And it's a bit like you said, it's like if people actually understand what you've been through just to get to the start line and then to put on a performance like that, it's still really an incredible performance. And I left my Olympics going, yeah, that was the best I could have done with what I had at the time. Yeah. How did, is that how you felt? Yeah, I mean, I felt I was actually like, yeah, I had exactly the same thing, thinking like, man, I did the best I possibly could. I like, ran the quickest, I had a good bike. My swim was actually, I thought, was in a better state than it was. And when we raced, I realized it, it actually wasn't. <laughs> and mm. further back than I thought. Um, and also with Hamburg as well, kind of like, it's funny, but, uh, I was going, I think the race just before it was, it was like clockwork again in 2016, me racing against Mario in Hamburg. Uh, and that's where I got, uh, DQ'd and I was literally back on form first race back from a broken collarbone and Mario and I like dueling it out for the win. Um, and then Mario leans over and tells me during the run, Richard, you got a penalty while we're running. And so I don't think I don't think everyone knows this, but so Mario told me I had a penalty, and then all of a sudden we we're running, so we we're like probably twenty seconds or twenty five seconds up on the field after two and a half or after about three k on the run, and he tells me I got a penalty, and I'm like, is he trying to like get to me mentally or something? <laughs> is he trying? Because I'm like, I'm not going to have any of it. Like I don't care what he has to say to me. <laughs> we were because he was like surging and I was countering the surges and I'm like, no, bro, we're coming to a sprint finish. <laughs> and uh, then I was literally running and the Spanish coach shouted at me, I have a penalty. I'm like, I'm like, not another one <laughs> is what I thought. <laughs> I thought, what on earth is this for now? I said, like, because it was like three years in a row I got a penalty in Hamburg. <laughs> like three years. Like that's like, um, and the one was for, man, I've had some like real petty stuff. Like so the one in Hamburg was for leaving my water bottle standing next to my bike. Oh. So my like overall third place in the World Series and the prize money from the race and everything got all taken down because I left the water bottle and then an official thought it would be good not to give me a penalty for having a water bottle standing next to my It didn't even move. It just stood there the whole race next to my bike. Oh, no. And What year was, what year was that? So that was 2016 when I got DQ'd. And so I literally ran. Um, oh, yeah. I thought it was. A, I thought you had a wetsuit in somebody oh, else's bucket. So that, was seven, that was 16, yes. I, I put my helmet. The BBC wanted to do an interview with me. I'm standing in transition. And they called me over. Richard, you've got to come for an interview. So I put my helmet on the wrong side of my bike. Mm. And then I went to do an interview. And then when I came back, I was, a bit la- like I was a bit rushed for the swim start. And I left my helmet there on the wrong side of my bike. So it was actually in the opposite athlete's. Uh, bin and then when I came in from the swim I ran you obviously I'd go straight to my helmet immediately which happened to be on the wrong side of my bike and then chuck my wetsuit into the box which was the other athlete's box it was like a snowball effect on on and now after that I learned focus and transition don't do interviews while you're kind of like setting your stuff up because that was kind of one of it was like a snowball thing that kind of that's how it ended up happening and then obviously I chucked it into the wrong into the wrong box. And the year before I got a penalty for the water bottle. And then this time I literally flipped. So then I was like, it doesn't matter what I do in Hamburg, I'm going to get a penalty. I may as well just take one like in case on the run or something. <laughs> um, and and then so then I, then I stopped with the official and the official stopped me. 
uh, obviously I knew I had a penalty and I stopped. Now I'm already like, I want to have a sprint finish with Mario that's been taken away from me. Mm. And then I stopped there and, and the official then obviously, like as I stopped, the official now grabs the, the thing out and I've already lost a couple of seconds in grabbing the, the timing thing out. And then he pressed start on the thing. Then I'm asking him like, what what is it for, the penalty? Mm. And the official doesn't even look at me. So then I'm like, I'm like, what is it for? So then he's like, just keeps looking at the stopwatch. Then I start screaming at him, what is it for? Like at the top of my voice. <laughs> and this guy didn't even look at me. Yes, and I was like, I was literally like fuming. And so then I ran out the penalty box and I gave it like the soccer ball, F yours type of thing. Yeah. The, actually to the event. It wasn't actually, so people, everyone thought I, like I aimed it at the official, but I'm like, I know the official is just his job. Like I wouldn't, yeah. I'm not a person who would like, I mean, it's his job to give the penalty, so it's not. His, it wasn't his choice. It was someone else who made the call, and he's the guy who stands and gives me the penalty. And so I did that, and then I ran across and punched a few signboards of the of the event organizers across, and then uh, started banging on the window and screaming and swearing and pulling middle fingers at the live television, which probably was not the best call um, in hindsight because I realized that Chris Gemmell was there busy doing this with his hands under his neck telling me to stop, and I was like freaking losing my business. Uh, on live television, which <laughs> which was an interesting moment. Well, we all enjoyed it, mate. I, I remember watching that live. Uh, I don't know where I was. I think I was in Colorado and uh, watching that race live. I think we were all disappointed to not get another sprint finish because you and Mario have had you, your tussles over the years and, and I think that I think it was at 2014 London when it was like a seven-man sprint finish. And uh, I think Mario just got you on that one. I think you got second to Mario on that one. But I think we were ready for a, another great sprint between you guys. And then suddenly the commentators were going, you know, uh, you know, Richard has a – he has a penalty. He's going to have to stop. And it was going like, oh. But then – we still got a good show after all, mate. We, it, was, yeah, well, uh, it was kind of a, yeah, it was funny because after the race, I didn't know, they hadn't told me I'd been disqualified. So so then so then I thought like they went there and they said, yeah, no, you've got to go into the officials booth and they've got like this this uh, kind of like a camper van type thing with officials standing in and I went in there and they were like talking to me and they were saying, yeah, I might be disqualified. They're, they're looking into it and stuff. And I said like, yeah, what for? And they said, no, for unsportsmanlike behavior and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I, yeah, you're probably right on that one. Um, <laughs> I might have overreacted in the heat of the moment, which probably, I don't know, most people probably would have, yeah. uh, to a certain degree, a lot of the time, I don't know, it depends on your character, I guess, about whether you kind of blow up or whether you just suck it up and go, okay, well, another penalty. Um, and uh, in hindsight, I should have actually just sprinted Mario for the finish because if I had known I would have been disqualified, I would have just l- just thrown my penalty out the window and gone for a sprint finish. Yeah, that's right. And at least had the, the, the win and, and know that you had him. <laughs> you know, I'd, rather, I'd rather get nothing than lose at a sprint finish. Oh, mate. I, and I felt for you because, it, I mean, it, it is one of those – it's like you said at the start of the show, you – being an endurance athlete and you felt like you were a rebellious sort of guy and maybe this is and then i felt like 2016 well finally you got to show you a bit of rebellion um but they came down pretty hard on you and and so hard in fact that like you said i think you now you would have finished on the podium that year for the world series right it was also like because it was uh so second place was like sixteen thousand us so I lost that. And then I lost the points for overall because I got disqualified, which was like second place is a lot. 
And then I ended up finishing fourth or fifth at the end of the year. And then when I calculated at the end, I was like, man, that's like, that's like 40 grand that I just lost for like just mouthing off on live television. Yeah, I know. Oh, mate. It was like, and it was, the funny thing is, when I came out, the, I didn't know I'd have been disqualified. The way I found out I was disqualified was when I walked out this camper van and I saw somebody else climbing on the podium in second place instead of me. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was Jacob Burtwistle from Australia. I think it was his first time on, on the like, podium. And I said, does that mean I'm disqualified? And they said, yeah, yeah, that means you're disqualified. So that's a very nice way of portraying it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I was like, wow. And then I was thinking of all these, and then I had drug testing as well still after that. Oh, even being DQ'd. I oh, DQ'd no. And I had drug testing, and I said, wonder if I just decide now that I'm not going to do it and they can go and shove their head up their arm. I know. Oh, mate. It's just <laughs> when, it, when it rains, it pours. Did <laughs> I now get now banned from sport because I'm not drug testing? I know. Well, that, that would be the next thing, wouldn't it? And then you've taken it too far. Oh, mate. And have you had any, have you had any um, penalties since? Well, I've actually had less so far, touch wood. But I think some of the times, yeah, it's uh, for small little things. I try now to try and stick in the rules as much as I can because they do eye me out quite a lot because I think once you become somebody who gets penalties often, they kind of make sh- – they kind of – I don't want to say they're like they victimize you a bit, but they definitely do in a little bit, the small regard. Um, and some events are more tricky than other ones. Like it's interesting, but it depends on which officials are – officiating what event as to how strict the rules will be or not. And there's also like favorites. So some athletes don't get penalties when they should do. That also happens. Is that right? Yeah. I've seen it many occasions where, where, where some athletes did some things where, where they looked and even say it over the microphone, but then the officials didn't see it. And everyone afterwards said, how can that happen? How did they not get a penalty? And it also always depends on the official on the day who kind of decides to whether give the penalty or not, or if it's in good faith or not. And I think that's one thing where I find in triathlon kind of takes away from the the whole part of triathlon, if that makes any sense. Like triathlon's there for athletes to race each other. And if somebody pushes someone into the fence and they crash or something, or they steal someone's bike through transition or something along those regards, I find that that kind of takes away from the sport and that's shouldn't that should definitely not be allowed but kind of takes away from the actual racing i I have a story on when i got a penalty this one will be quite funny so delhi Carr, the famous photographer triathlon photographer sends me a, a photo via email to both laura and myself and it was from the beijing i don't know if it was a world cup or world series whatever it was back in the 15 years ago now anyway I'd gone there to support Laura. I wasn't really had my head in it. And he sends me these photos and it's called Beauty and the Cheat. So the beauty is Laura laid out dive on the second lap, you know, running around taking this beautiful dive. And the first picture is of me fully laid out on the start line, already in the water with everybody else still standing on the pontoon. And I got this enormous head start. I probably had like a three or four meter head start. I just wasn't thinking my head wasn't in the game and I and then I just decided to go for it and already I'm like well the penalty is 15 seconds for beating the start so I, I've got a couple of second lead here and it'll get me in a good swim position by the first boy just optimize this 15 seconds I get to the about halfway towards that that first buoy a guy behind grabs my ankle he was pissed off about it another guy comes over the top and belts the crap out of me I ended up coming out the back of the pack 
I came out of the swim almost two minutes behind, and uh, I get to T. I get to T one, and the the official says, "Greg, you've got a, a fifteen second penalty. You're so far behind, mate, that they're probably going to lap you. So we're just going to let you go." <laughs> well, that seems that seems that that seems like the right call there. <laughs> yeah, mate. I, I was I was so pathetic, and it was an accident. I lost my balance, and then just decided to push. You know, you know when they say you're in the hands of the start, and they got the the heart rate thing going, boom, boom. And I just went up. I put my toes on the edge way too quickly, and just I was like, "Oops, I'm going. I better just dive and make the most of it." I think I think I, think I did the worst false start in a swim at Super League in history. If you want to go back and look at it, the pontoon was like plastic on the front. And I like to do a two-foot start when I dive. Uh, so, so now everyone's leaning forwards and I do two feet, but we had already dived in the time before, so it was wet, the plastic. So when I put two feet together and everyone stood forwards, the pontoon slipped downwards in the front and I like feet slipped and I went feet first in for the dive start. <laughs> and there's got a picture of me looking like a duck going into the water. <laughs> I'm almost like pretzeling it into the water. <laughs> and then everyone dives. And as I'm in the water, I'm thinking like, this is not going to be a good 300 meters swim. No. <laughs> I thought, I'm definitely not going to come out in the front back. Yeah. Oh, mate. I, I love it. Second penalty as well. I, got, I think I got a 10 second penalty or something as well in T1. <laughs> so I came out like, I'm like, this is so KO for me because it's a 4K oh. bike. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no chance of me making this. Uh, I mean, you just got to laugh. I mean, sometimes these things happen and they just feel like you, you ever get those dreams, those triathlon type dreams where just random things are happening. I've had so many of those where it's just, you know, I remember, I remember one time, uh, I think it was Geelong World Cup and I'd had to go back to my hotel right before the start for some reason. And then I just, the hotel was right near the transition. So I took my bike back and, and put it on the rack and they've got us all lined up to walk down to the start and fortunately I, I think I, w- I was number one at the time so I'm walking down number one they're about to call me out and they're like Greg someone noticed you don't have any bike shoes on your on your bike <laughs> I'd gone back to the hotel and left them left them in in the hotel so I've had to run back to the hotel cross the road in my in my whole gear everybody's now focused on the start line grab my bike quickly put them on t1 and and then I didn't get to pick my first spot you know obviously I missed my ranking so again I I've got to choose last on the pontoon but these kind of things they're almost like nightmarish type things they're the kind of things that you know you you have dreams about but when they actually happen god you just gotta laugh it's awful isn't it yeah no I think that I think I've got uh well I wouldn't say one that's similar to that, but I remember the one junior uh, junior athlete. I'm not going to mention exactly who it was because he, if he listens to this, he'll probably know exactly who he is. But um, he uh, woke up like about 40 minutes before the start um, at one of the grand finals. And uh, he was in the room and stuff. And the start was really early. It was like 7 or 8 a.m. or something like that. Um, and then he woke up and he thought, shit, man, it's like 40 minutes to the race start. But then he, but then he told, then he, he blamed the federation for not waking him up. <laughs> I thought that's an interesting one, but uh, no, I think that w- waking up forty minutes or half an hour before your race start, or uh, my dream of me busy packing all my stuff into my suitcase, and I look outside, and then I see everyone lining up on the pontoon, and I'm looking out from the hotel, and I see everyone lining up, and I see the like horn blow, and they all dive in, and I'm there in my hotel room still getting my stuff ready. Like I'm not ready and I missed the start. 
Oh, mate, that's awful. Which is like the worst you dream know what ever. Like- <laughs> I haven't raced for five years. Oh, I still have these dreams and I haven't raced for five years. They're awful. <laughs> yeah, that's the, you're almost ready, but you're not ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, now we talked about Joel. Um, you guys decide to you, you left Joel. Um, I just want to move on a little bit here because I'm I'm interested about the team that you've built around yourself now. Obviously, now your wife Rachel Clammer. You guys were married earlier this year. Um, and tell me about your coaches and, and and the team that you've got around you. Yeah, so we have quite an interesting team of coaches currently. Um, <laughs> we've got uh, so our, our we have a coach that does our biking and running. He's Louis Delahaye. Um, he coached the uh, whole. He coaches a whole bunch of top road cyclists, um, Mika from Flayton, and uh, whole bunch, And he was co- the, one of the coaches of the Lotte Yumbo cycling team as well uh, for a couple of years. And uh, so now he coaches our biking and our running uh, and our general overall kind of program. And then we have mm. Jordi Mullenberg. Uh, they're both Dutch coaches, so we actually have we have three Dutch coaches. Um, Jordi Mullenberg is the he worked with the Dutch Triathlon Federation as well as uh, Louis also works with the Dutch Triathlon Federation. Um, Jordi does our swimming program as well. So when we are traveling and when we are going to new places or going on camps, Jordi writes the training program for that. Um, and then we have a kind of like a technique. Well, I wouldn't say like a technique coach. We have a high performance swimming coach here that when we're in the area here, we train with them in a 50 meter pool, and they they were the car NZB, which is like. Uh, kind of one of the this kind of the district national or the district uh, swimming club like the the top level swimming club uh, and so yeah when we're here we, we we join them and he helps us a lot with our technique and stuff so when we're here uh, we kind of do the swim programs of kind of a mixture of uh, Jordi and of um, Jeroen uh, Rademacher which is the which is the Dutch national one of the swim coaches here where we live close by. Oh, brilliant! And, and was there a reason you left Joel to 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 do this and probably take a little bit more control of what you're doing? Or, or yeah, there's. I think what well, one of the big ones is kind of we were getting older, uh, which is kind of the I don't know if you're with a coach for for a couple of years. Um, after a few years, you know, it's always good. It's kind of I want to say it's similar to a company, as in like uh, you need to sometimes refresh things and you need to try something new and try something different to see if you can kind of get something different out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, we had a, we had a great relationship and, and things were working extremely well. We were going on camps, things were, things were well organized and we were, yeah, it was great. And I think, uh, Joel also started coaching with the Italians as well. So he was kind of getting a lot on his plate. Uh, mm-hmm. and we kind of felt like, yeah, we, you know, we really wanted hands on being there all the time type of coach. And, uh, so yeah, we, we felt like we wanted to move, uh, coaches and try something different, uh, before, uh, the, yeah, before Tokyo Olympics, this one. And so in 2017, uh, it was our last year with Joel. And we kind of did a fun year where we did like every race under the sun uh, in one season. I did like my first half distance race in, in, in Samoran, Challenge Samoran. Uh, Rachel also did it. We did like Xterra in South Africa uh, where I got, became South African champion there, which was pretty cool. Uh, and yeah, and so uh, we kind of wanted to move just to kind of be based as well in one more place, uh, not to be, you know, living out the suitcase as much anymore uh you know i did it for about like eight years or nine years living out the suitcase and i kind of felt it was a time to kind of spend more time in one place uh and kind of mm. feel like you have a bit more of a home um and so yeah that was more or less the, the thing kind of getting the homely feeling was kind of the ma- the major factor we wanted to have i like that and i think you 
I've described it as I, I look at coaches almost as getting a degree. You know, the, I, I always looked at them as that sort of four to five year type cycle of learning whatever you can from a coach and it doesn't hurt to keep moving to another coach. It, keep, it keeps it fresh and you keep learning and, and you keep growing. I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but I kind of that's kind of how I approached my career. And then it got to the point where a bit like you're doing with Rachel, Laura and I decided to take full control and decide how we're going to operate. And one of those key things that made a difference for us um, was to have the two home bases and reduce the travel. And for us, that ended up being sort of, you know, Boulder, Colorado and Noosa, Australia. Wasn't ideal for Laura's career, who was still focused on the ITU World Series, which tends to be fairly European, you know, focused, whereas it did help me, you know, with my sort of US non-drafting big money races here in the US. So it helped me, but it might have hurt Laura a little bit, that two home base and creating that home base, yeah, it did I a lot of things. One, it reduced the travel, the amount of time in the air, and everything else. But 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 secondly, it also allowed us to build really good teams in both those locations. Um, so I think you've done a, a it's a really good thing that you've done. Yeah, I think that was the yeah. I kind of I kind of agree with that in quite a sense, and also um, yeah, especially now as well. I mean, during Corona and during these things, I would have actually been in South Africa and. Uh, they kind of had like a full lockdown. We couldn't leave your house and stuff for a couple of months almost. Um, and so mm. fortunate on that regard to also be in, in the Netherlands and be able to uh, to have the great facilities. And, and obviously the lockdown was slightly different. And uh, yeah, it's kind of nice to have both uh, weather conditions as well. Obviously we leave uh, for South Africa most years in October side, October, November side after the European season racing kind of shuts down a bit and we head through to South Africa and we kind of, uh, get the summer there as well and we've also decided at the start of the thing i decided for christmas that we do one year south africa one year in the netherlands as well just so that we don't fuck and destroy <laughs> because that's always going to come up and uh so yeah we kind of i had to kind of knuckle down and have my first european uh style winter here which was quite an eye-opener for me uh coming from five degrees c maximum or well, minimum temperature in cape town or four degrees something like that to kind of like negative degrees cycling outside here was quite an eye-opener for me <laughs> Uh, our similarities don't stop, mate. I, that's what we had to do. You got to keep the mums happy. We've, we've alternated Christmases for twenty years now, trying to trying to keep, you know, go between Australia and the US here, um, mainly to keep the parents, you know, in laws happy and, and my own folks. So it's I, I totally get it. Um, tell me, we've talked a little bit about this, but I, I'd like to, your physical training. What your typical week? I mean, you have that on YouTube. You, you've got some great documentary on it, but. Sort of how many hours a week are there and, and what are some of your key workouts or your favorite workouts that you're doing both in season and I guess sort of just uh, out of season as you're building an aerobic base? Yeah, so I think um, actually the one lucky thing is I, well, I, I'm actually a personal trainer, so I studied uh, conditioning and coaching uh, after I finished high school. And so kind of that's how I like implement that a little bit into my training program. Luckily, Louis is quite open to me kind of adjusting things here and there if I need to, which is which is kind of great and definitely something in a coach we were looking looking for as well, um, just to have a little bit more uh, control on what we're doing and obviously how we're feeling and that type of thing on a daily basis. Uh, and yeah, so I think uh, mileage-wise in a week, um, I kind of go on the low end of mileage, so uh, probably anywhere from probably 20 hours to 27, 28 hours being the really, really big weeks for me. Um, mm. And uh, so that's like kind of hour-wise on the swim, probably do like 20 to 25 or 26 Ks of swimming in the week. So that's kind of a general swim mileage for the week. 
Uh, on the bike, I probably do about 250 to 350 on the bike uh, every week, which is also not a hell of a lot of riding. I mean, a lot of guys ride a lot more than that, four, 500K type of thing in the week. Uh, but I find, you know, for me, I, you know, I come from the site, a bit of a recycling background and that stuff. And, uh, you know, I can kind of get away with focusing on the key sessions I need to do instead of just a- adding mileage for the week. Uh, and then on the running side, I probably do anywhere from from 60K as being kind of a low running week mileage type thing to about 90 or maybe a direction of 100 if it's a really, really big running week. Mm. That that seems to be about the normal. And and I think as long as you're doing fairly specific work on the bike, um, you know, I, I see a lot of guys adding four to five hour bike rides, you know, often just to get the miles up and the hours of training. But I think being specific in what you're doing you know i think there's a lot of junk miles done on the bike so do you do you have any kind of key favorite workouts that you love to do you know maybe leading you know a couple of weeks out from a race or anything like that that's, that you really enjoy doing um yeah so uh, i'll generally try to look towards what the course is like um leading into the race so i'll check out how many corners the u-turn uh, type of thing uh, depending on the season uh, or how many races we've done before that race, uh, it's always good to obviously just do transitions and stuff and make sure we don't uh, get the small things wrong. Uh, always the first few races in the year, you always get the small things wrong. So for this year, we had to go and check transitions out and pulling shoes on and pulling helmets on and wet boots and all those small little things that can cost you big time when it comes to the racing side of things. Uh, and from the running side of things, um, I actually don't have – I mean, I've kind of gone through a lot of different cycles of training things, so there's no, like, one bread and butter session uh, that we'll do. But I think uh, kind of uh, some aerobic – I do a lot of aerobic endurance running. So most of my mileage running uh, for my speed work sessions, we kind of do two speed work sessions a week usually. It's a Tuesday and a Saturday. Uh, yeah. Here in the Netherlands, uh, Rachel's father goes and she, he, he enjoys running on the track. They run on the track, but they run on the track at about 7.30 p.m. on a Thursday evening, um, which is quite a random time to run your track workout. Um, but it's uh, the, the word that they call is gesellig here in the Netherlands, which is like uh, chatty or uh, having a good conversation with other people, and that's quite important here in the Netherlands. So we're going to do our track workout on a Thursday evening sometimes, yeah, and we kind of just – fill in there's a, a running squad here uh kind of mostly age groupers or guys kind of age uh 40 40 to to 60 somewhere around there running on the track um and so yeah we join uh, we join them and do a track workout with them as well and, and it depends what they're doing sometimes we do uh 400s sometimes we do 600s uh and usually in summer they kind of do shorter speed stuff uh and with our coach uh, my aerobic endurance running is anywhere from like probably 315 to about 340 a k, uh, and so I do most of my speed work within that range of of about 315 to 340. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that, and it's kind of interesting. But I mean, uh, coming from like a track and field speed work uh, lifestyle when I grew up, um, I've kind of got speed. So if I got to go out and bang out a one k as hard as I can, I can kind of go and do it. Um, but the thing for me is it's almost like I need to focus more on my aerobic capacity. And, and if I can run a bit slower than my race pace, I kind of build myself, then I actually break myself down. Um, and so, yeah, that kind of ends up working for me. And the best thing is it ends up working for Rachel as well. Um, so for Rachel, she's kind of more of, uh, you know, she needs to run faster for her to get quicker. So we actually end up having the same session a lot of the time. And I kind of got to run in front of Rachel and be like a pacemaker um and so yeah so some of the times rachel can uh 
hang on at 320 or 325 for most of the reps as well. That's fantastic. And you know what I used to do with Laura, and it's the next little bit I just want to chat to you about quickly, but for Laura, I was always a very visual person. I visualized, I always had a commentator in my head. I was always playing games. It was always happening. And, and Laura always, well, she just didn't, she wasn't drawn to that kind of thing. So what I would do with her is do her workouts a bit like you're doing with Rachel, run that sort of 320, 325K pace, but I was able to commentate next to her and create the imagery and the and and all the excitement around around the race. Do you do that with Rachel at all? Um, no, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I do obviously. I do. I do give her the odd cheer here and there, and uh, the one time running on the track as well. And the guys are like, "Oh, what are you doing? You're running 320. You should be running 250 a k all the time, type of thing." I'm like, "Well, it, 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 it's a it's a unique scenario here that ends up working, so we're going to stick to it." And um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, no, definitely she uh, she has to go all in for those things to kind of uh, get the benefit. Uh, she, she's like a diesel engine. She. The worst thing is that I see her being long distance, more long distance worthy than myself in some regards, just because I've, I'm like a very like fast twitch type, uh, speedy type carry. It comes naturally, but the endurance stuff for me is, uh, yeah, I kind of burn out much quicker than she does. She kind of gets better as she goes <laughs> goes along. So like the longer for her, the better. Yeah, no, I, I think with the um, the aerobic training is fascinating to me. And I, I know when we started coaching ourselves in, in 2004, for me, I did a lot of work on athletic type training and trying to figure out how, you know, if I can run, like you said, run a 1K in that 240, 245, well, why can't I run 10Ks in 250, 255? You know, why can't I hold it and what what, what am I missing? And and that's where that endur- endurance running, and I, I used to call it best easy pace. What's the best easy pace? And that doesn't mean slow. You know, my long runs for two hours were often done in that 340 to 345K pace and just holding it there where I just got this enormous strength and endurance. And I know Javier Gomez and I used to train together in Noosa a lot and both of us would just hold this 340 pace for that two hours. But then that aerobic endurance that you got, you knew you could then sprint a 10K. You knew you weren't going to break down. You know, is it that same kind of philosophy that you're doing? Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's not as long. So the reps are kind of a shorter rep as well. Um, so most of my runs are kind of done at about five minutes a K. Um, so probably 80% of the running is done at about like, um, yeah, anywhere from 4.45 to five minutes a K. I used to be at about 5.10 to 5.15 for the last couple of years. So most of the runs would be over over five minutes a K. Uh, wow. And yeah, I uh, I used to only run four minutes a K. So when I started running four minutes a K was my bread and butter. I used to go out and, uh, 40 minute 10k uh, four times a week and that was my running finished yeah. um and then that would be enough and uh, i kind of learned that i got to actually run slower sometimes which i had to learn to run slow which was tough and uh joined the local running squad and they were all running six minutes a k um and so going from four minutes a k to six minutes a k is a big jump <laughs> and uh, yeah. i've never run more than about i think 10ks was the longest i'd ever run until i was about 17 or 16. So wow. 10Ks was where that, that was my limit. Uh, and <laughs> um, I'd done mountain bike races and I did uh, road cycling races of like over 100K. I did 100 and f- I think I did a, when I was 18, I did a 200K time trial, team time trial when I was 18 on the bike. Um, and so I done a lot of like aerobic capacity on the bike, but on the run I hadn't done it. Mm. Um, which sometimes you can actually get away with aerobic capacity from the bike actually trans- transferring a bit to your run in a, in, a, in a certain regard and maybe not exactly the same but you can definitely get a tiny bit of aerobic capacity from the bike but 
And so I sort of learned to run run slowly, and then uh, yeah, kind of for me to run uh, my heart rate at about one twenty, so I'm quite heart rate orientated, uh, and I try and run at like sixty to sixty five percent of max heart rate for most of my runs. Um, and so, yeah, that's for me at about 120 heart rate to 130 heart rate. And for me, that's at about five minutes a K. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that's, and that, that definitely keeps you uninjured and healthy, I'd imagine. Yeah. I think that, I mean, it's a very low impact as well. So, um, yeah, I kind of generally run, yeah, a lot of the time really, really slowly and just kind of build aerobic capacity. And when I need to run fast, then I can kind of go out and uh, I remember in the one time in the off season I wanted to run a 5k to see how fast I could run and I hadn't run for like three weeks or four weeks um, and I thought oh let's see how fast I could run I still I still managed to do like a 15 15 or 15 20 or like no running for like almost a month well um, that's really good running yeah so it was so, so luckily the, from that side the speed but I think for a 10k is a different story because you need the aerobic capacity more than, than on a 5 yeah, I agree. I agree. So let's just move on a little. There's so many other things I, I'm going to have to skip over here because I have a couple of big questions at the end here that I want to chat to you about. What do you think it's going to take to win the gold medal in Tokyo? In Tokyo, I think so. I think being able to race while in the heat will be one. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not ridiculously hot like uh, like Cosima or Huatulco or any of those races, but it's definitely hot, definitely hot and humid. Um, so I think your swim, obviously, the swim's got to be there. You've got to be in the front pack. That's one big thing. Uh, I think closing closing on the on the Tokyo course is very, very hard. It's a very, very tight and very technical course. So, uh, yeah, you've got to be in the front pack, uh, and then you've got to be able to run probably a 30-30 or a 30-20 run in the, in the heat. Mm. And, and so when you're talking about heat, what are you guys going to be doing to prepare? Where are you going to be living and preparing for Tokyo? Um, we, I actually didn't do any heat preparation for Tokyo. Uh, luckily, I come from South Africa, so for me, the hotter the better. If it was 45 degrees Celsius and we were racing, I'd be a happy man. But uh, fortunately, it's not 45 degrees. Uh, but no, in, in the summer in South Africa, I think over the years, uh, for me, hot race, cold race, I don't really mind, which is... I wouldn't say, well, a little bit fortunate, but uh, I've a, got a really high core temperature. So when it's cold, I kind of I can still train in the cold, which is good. Um, and then when it's really hot, I kind of you know I kind of shed heat pretty pretty well and 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 kind of cool down reasonably well. So in the heat, I kind of enjoy racing in the heat. So yeah, I don't think I don't know whether you can acclimatize yourself. I mean, if you're in need of acclimatization, but the only thing is, in a really hot climate, you don't recover and you don't sleep, and you actually you, you lose a lot of liquid. So mm-hmm. actually not a huge fan. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a really tricky one to do. At the end of the day, whether you're doing altitude, whether you're doing heat adaptation or anything, they're extra stresses. And when you add extra stresses, they're extra variables and something has to give. I mean, you, you hope that the body's getting stronger, whether it's altitude or heat acclimatization, but you can be hurting yourself on the other on the other spectrum of your training suffers and everything else. So, or your sleep, like you said. So it, it is this kind of going for too much could actually hurt you but um identifying that it is a hot race understanding how to keep your body cool both you know before and during um is is going to be critical but it's it, it is going to play a major part like you said uh, the winning run times you know being in that sort of 30 20 to 30 30 well that's you know a minute and a half off what you guys are capable of um but that's how the effect of the heat and humidity can really stack up against you guys um what about long term I mean, I look at you and think, I mean, you said, you know, you're all speed, you're all power, but 
the what you biomechanically when i look at you both on the the bike and run i th- see somebody who's going to be very capable of developing into a great ironman half ironman athlete is that on the horizon um the that's definitely not on the horizon <laughs> <laughs> no um no I, i'm actually you know it's interesting but actually i actually want to become a coach you know, I did one half distance race and I don't want to say I found it boring, but I found it boring. Uh, hey, you can tell me that, mate. I, I agree with you. I, I was like, why am I here? I could be out on a training ride somewhere in South Africa, busy abusing myself here. And I think, I think what happened is the first race I did was like the worst race to ever pick, like a race challenge tomorrow and against like Brownlee and Sanders and Keenle and Rayleigh brother and, uh, uh, and uh, Dreitz. And uh, so that was my first half distance experience, uh, which was a pretty reasonable field, I guess. Um, and I kind of got put to shame on the bike and realized that 330 or 320 watts is, is not enough um, mm. when it comes to to that. And then I kind of thought, well, yeah, I don't know. It was just, it was a long day out racing and I'm not used to, I'm used to like competitive and, you know, almost crashing and this is going to be dangerous. So like running as humanly hard as we can. And this is almost like preserving myself until I explode. When I went to the 70.3s in the halves and I think I won eight out of 15 70.3s and honestly, every single one of them I finished, it was like, hmm. I didn't enjoy that. And and I constantly, every time I got an interview, so I don't put me in the same group as the, the when are you going to step up? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. To some degree, I felt like it was stepping out. And I I did it when I turned 40. I, I, I love the sport of triathlon. And for me, it was as much experience ticking a box, qualifying for Hawaii Ironman, doing Hawaii. I'd grown up as a kid in the 80s watching Mark Allen, Dave Scott, the whole thing. And then I'd go on and watch my peers, my mates, you know, Chris McCormack, Craig Alexander, whoever it is, all go over to Hawaii and have big success. And I thought, yeah, I want to be a part of that. So I went and did it. Um, I got to see a lot of the road. I was very lonely. It was a long day. (laughs) It was not a great experience, but it was a good experience, if you know what I mean. I got some joy out of it, but it certainly was, was brutal. So I think it's one of those things, if you're not desperately wanting to do it i i I don't think it is the right move then (laughs) no i think you know we actually want to do some stage race mountain biking uh is kind of the rachel and myself Mm. we want to do the epic uh the absicape epic Mm. um she's like oh that look that looks crazy that looks that looks exciting and i'm like yeah that's that sounds like a good idea (laughs) i looked and i hopefully we can get a comp entry and we can go there and just race it um yeah and i think that's uh there's a couple of i mean also with super league coming about now like i mean in the next 10 years i'm hoping that super league is going to become a a mainstay um Mm. they're really short i think people's attention span the one thing that i noticed well the shorter the racing the better for tv Mm -hmm. and uh, you know, for commercial side of things, things that sell or, or things that are fast, things that are short, things that, uh, yeah, I don't know. People in, can sit down for 20 minutes, uh, have some lunch or whatever and watch and that's the end of it. Yeah, I agree with you. The Super League racing, what Mac has put on, that's how we all learned our trade in the 90s. It's great racing for to be a part of. It's adrenaline, it's fast, it's furious, and I agree with you. I think as a fan, it's it's so much more fun to watch. <laughs> I think we I think after racing it sounds horrible, but a lot of my friends back home asked me like, Oh, when are you doing the next Super League race? 
and I'd already done like six or seven World Series races. And I said, no, no, I raced the World Series. Race. Yeah, but that doesn't come on television. And no. I said, what? And I looked and the Super League took the rights for uh, the ITU for uh, the television rights in South Africa. So all my friends all them only see Super League, Super League races. Oh, no. Uh, and, yeah, and so it's interesting, but I think the, also because there's less athletes, each athlete actually becomes like a star. Mm. Which, no, for sure. which is which is great, and I mean it's uh, yeah, I think it's definitely you know you could, then the thing is you can't have obviously have the numbers, you can't have like sixty athletes racing and 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 that type of thing. But athletes always spend more time together as well because there's no federations and there's no things, and so it's like the athletes actually coming together and there's actually more interaction with each other, which is actually also quite nice. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. It's it's one of the things that when once we got into the Olympics, you know, I was in the sport, you know, before triathlon was in the Olympics, and then it came to the Olympics, and it all became a little bit more about federations. And before that, we all all the athletes used to mingle a lot more at the breakfast table at the hotels, and we all hung out a fair bit. And then all of a sudden, you know, suddenly you got the German team over there, the French over there, and I was like, what's going on? These are all my mates, and now they're all kind of sitting in their country areas, and and we lost a little bit of that that mateship that brotherhood that that we had and and i think you're right i think the professional type series like the super league they they bring that back um mate i just think this has been absolutely fantastic i could keep chatting to you for another hour or two because i think you and i both enjoy talking about the sport um there's a lot of similarities of your career and mine and that was one of the reasons i really wanted you on the show i think uh, i think you're doing incredible work mate and i do think a winning streak is only just around the corner for you. I still think there's tremendous potential in you. So um, I'm really excited to see you, you race both, you know, finishing this year and into next year and hopefully a lot a lot more into the future. No, awesome. Yeah, thanks. I think it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally do agree. We could chat until the, until the cars come home. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I definitely I definitely think that, you know, next, next year is another year to shine for me as well. Uh, Tokyo this year, I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, well, I'm glad I'm not 33 or 34 now because then next year, like, oh, I'm 35. Mm, I'm not going to be fast enough. So hopefully 32, I should still be pretty good next year. And, uh, yeah, after that, uh, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing what we're going to do next. We've got some some wild ideas for the year after the Olympics, uh, something to do with a camper van and traveling and racing everywhere, which is going to be pretty epic. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think we've got a lot of cool things coming up after the Olympics as well as Olympics and uh, and beyond. So yeah, thanks for the thanks for the chat. All right, mate. Thanks thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks everybody for listening. You can go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media to get all the show notes and timestamps and and links uh, to to Richard Murray and his YouTube and Facebook and everything else that he's got going on. Uh, make sure you go check him out. Richard, thanks again, buddy. Really appreciate it. Stay on the line. 100 shall do. Cheers. Thanks for the chat. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.